Hi, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of um, Twice Removed. I'm Natalie Pithers, a genealogist. Um, uh, you can find me and all the other Twice Removed interviews on www.genealogystories.co.uk. And I'm so pleased that I remembered for a second week going, <laughs> second week running that I remembered to introduce myself. Yay! Although I have just edited my intro video and uh, played it and then noticed that I'd missed um, some of the text on it, updating it to my latest font. So nearly there. One day I will get a perfect interview introduction. <laughs> But, um, but much more importantly, I'm joined today by Dr. Sarah Reid. Sarah, I'd be lovely if you could um, introduce yourself to everybody. Hello, yeah. Uh, my name's Sarah Reid and my day job, I work as a lecturer in English at Loughborough University, um, but I'm also um, a novelist in my spare time as well. You've got it all going on. Mm. <laughs> you must be so busy. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> That's the way I like it, though. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining me today. Um, I wanted to start by asking um, probably like the most obvious question, but I've tried Googling it and no matter how many times I Google it, the, the answer never sticks in my head. So can you tell me when was the early modern period? Hmm. Well, it's one of those one of those that everybody's got their own answer for. But essentially it means post-medieval, just before the modern era. So um Everybody's got their own sort of interpretation of exactly when it started, but um, you might want to think about it from the terms of sort of the Reformation up until the Industrial Revolution, even it can go that far. Um, but every, as I say, everybody's a bit different. I tend to sort of be mainly 17th century based, but it's the start of modernity, if you like. It's the start of a, a society that's very much got things in common with ours that was, you know, that's recognizable to the way we live. So, start of modernity, really. That makes it really clear. Thank you. That's much clearer than any of the explanations I've read, actually, because, uh, yeah, I think it's when you um, when you look for the answer, you find so many different time periods, it becomes quite confusing. Mm -hmm. um, so you mentioned that you're a lecturer in English at the University of Loughborough. Um, could you tell me what is a literary historian? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of historian that um, also incorporates traditional literature into their research so um, plays and poems uh, and are all source texts for me in the same way that perhaps a medical textbook would be and I can give you a really good example when looking into how early modern women managed their periods at this time the most unlikely source which was some really filthy poetry from uh, John Wilmot Earl of Rochester had got more to say about it than most most of the writers <laughs> I think that's great. No, I can I can relate to that because my uh, my degree is in English, and I think that was my English lit was kind of my introduction to history. Um, mm. So I can I can relate to that a lot. So, um, can you tell us? So you mentioned about periods there. So I wanted to um, start with uh, um, actually what it was like giving birth in the past, mm. um, mostly because I think as when we look at our ancestors, and we quite often find women who. Um, who died not long after childbirth um, or women who had like 10 children um, and, and things that maybe aren't quite as um, common as they are today. Um, sorry, yes, yeah, so they're not common today. Um, it makes me certainly think about what the experience of giving birth was like in the past. And I just wonder whether you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So in, um, in early modern times, giving birth, is it was quite different really from um, our experience, most people's experience today, because everybody gave birth at home, their home or somebody else's home. So some, some women went home to mum, a few people went to the midwife's house, 
but nearly everybody else gave birth in their own bed at home. Um, and it was an all-women environment in the 17th century. So you'd have your midwife, you'd have your friends and your neighbours, you might even have some frenemies there, the atmosphere could be quite fraught, you know. <laughs> And, uh, but your your female circle, um, and they would be called your gossips, um, and it comes from the same root as godparent, so sort of God's helper, um, and and their job would be quite a physical one actually to help the labouring woman, so to give her drinks, mop her brow, but actually also to climb up behind her and sit and prop her up so that she could give birth, sitting up on the edge of the bed with support, holding her hand, stroking her belly. Um, so that, that that's essentially how um, experienced the childbirth was at this time. It was a reciprocal thing. Um, you know, you'd be you'd not, your neighbour for your gossip, they uh, gossip for your neighbour, they'd be one for you um, in due course. Um, so that that's your main difference, really, is, is it, it's a room in your house. Um, people would often swap out their good feather mattress for a straw one. You're not going to want to ruin the best one. So even quite high up, well, to-do ladies went into the straw to, to give birth because then you could take it out into the back garden and burn it and, you know, nothing lost. Um, so, so that was quite a common practice as well. Um, but, yeah, I think that that's, that's the main difference is, is the home environment and the, the female camaraderie that, that went on in births. That sounds quite hectic. Well, not hectic, but... I get this picture of quite a few people in the room. Is that, would it be common to have sort of what, five or six or more? Yeah, or? yeah. yeah. I mean, so between this, you and your midwife, and then, you know, you've got your, perhaps your mum, your mother-in-law, a couple of neighbours, friends. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, it could get quite crowded and it could get quite noisy if people had different ideas about the right way to proceed. And that's one of the jobs of a midwife would be to keep order, um, you know, make sure that things progress in the best interests of the labouring woman. Um, but if you look at any of the pictures from the era of a post-birth, you know, recovery, they are really crowded scenes. And, you, you know, once the men are let back in and then there'd be this drinking and eating and you see they've always got dogs in. All these pictures have got dogs in. <laughs> <laughs> and children playing and <laughs> just exactly what you might think of as being a bit of a nightmare when you just give them birth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah definitely yeah I certainly uh, my my first pregnancy was um uh, I had a really really long latency labor and then I had quite a complicated birth um with a with a kind of big red button emergency c-section and um yeah it was it was quite scary and the thought of there being lots of people in the room mm. just like oh no thank you but um but on the other hand knowing that you've got that support when things um when things do get difficult and um i i know when i gave birth um my midwives were all brilliant and i i really relied on them and there was something you kind of bond with these people temporarily for 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 the hours that you're in hospital but you don't ever forget them um do you think do you think that was the same in the past as well do you think um that you're more, more likely to know your midwife personally i suppose yeah, I mean, I, I like you, I, I remember the names of all the three midwives that lived my three children and always will. Um, and, you know, but I think in the early modern era, in the 17th century, um, midwife was somebody who was in your, you know, your local town, your local village, uh, who everybody knew. Um, and you would call for her and you'd want the midwife that you had the best relationship with. If you lived in a town, there might be two or three. So, you know, you'd, you'd pick the one that you'd got on best with. Um, and so, yeah, it's very much a personal relationship 
Uh, and of course, if you were having the average is, is five to seven babies in the 17th century. So, you know, you, you see a lot of each other. Really. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, you, you wouldn't want to get on her bad side, really, would you? Yeah. Especially if you're in a small village, the last thing you want to do is annoy your annoy your um, annoy your midwife. So how did where you give birth that giving birth in in home did that change over the period and and if so sort of how and why uh yes and no i think is the best way of answering that for most people no you know most people up until the 20th century nothing changed and um community births as they were known in the early 20th century were the norm for the vast majority of our um foremothers what did change from the early 18th century onwards is this introduction of what they called lying in hospitals and they were dotted around the capital um big cities scotland um and you know so there was a few of them grew up in the 18th century and that was more like a maternity hospital would become um in later periods but that's only a very small percentage of women having that experience as i say for most of us even up until the 1900s, things were very, you know, home birth was the, was the very much the norm. Okay. And the midwives themselves that were working at home, were they, um, were they well paid for their work or um, what, what were their lives like? Um, they varied. There, were, there was um, several sort of different groups of women who were attracted to, to working as midwives. Some of them were quite well to do, you know, the gentlewoman, um, maybe the wife of a merchant. Um, the, I, I wrote the um, Oxford Dictionary of National Biography Entry for a woman called Elizabeth Whip who died in the 1640s. And she was a merchant's wife and she left quite a lot of money in her will, you know, several hundred pounds and clothes and bits and pieces her family in a will so they were quite well to do so she would sort of be the upper echelons of, of, a, of a community midwife um, but then they could they could be from any rank um, the unqualified if you like as, as much as anybody was qualified weren't called midwives they were called hand women you know from the same derivation of farm hand um, and so they they'd be sort of more the woman in the area who knew who knew a lot about giving birth and was people wanted her there to support them and not every not everywhere had a fully licensed midwife anyway you know um but where you did have one um she was trained by apprenticeship so she'd be deputy to a practicing midwife for three to six years okay and when she got to the end of her training she would deliver half a dozen women maybe more on her own who would then be able to vouch for her skills and say how good she was at her job um, and that would be the end of her apprenticeship but to get her license she didn't do exams or any of the things that we we think of now she'd have to go before the bishop and get a church license so uh, midwifery licenses were issued by the church um, and the the midwife so that they'd have to swear it's quite a big deal. Uh, um, the, there was one published, there's several versions of it, but one that was published from the 1640s had 15 points in it that a midwife had to swear. Um, so that was that was in conjunction with her testimonial. So she would need um, the signatures of the woman who she delivered or their husbands to sign on their behalf. Um, there's one that I use um, as inspiration for somebody in the novel. 
uh, the Gossip's Choice, and it's a midwifery license of Mary Thorne. And there's a there's a list of about 10 men, and it's the wife of such and such, the wife of such and such, you know, and, that, and it's the men who've signed to say um, that she was competent. And from the mid, well, first third of the 18th century, you find there's a little bit of a change in the licensing documents in that doctors and or other men seem to be vouching for, for midwives as well as the women that they've delivered. So that's a bit of a social change that goes on then. But I've got right. some points from the midwifery license if you want me to. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, go for it. Thank you. Yeah. So the first point is that you had to promise to help rich and poor women alike and not to leave a poor woman's side because a rich woman wanted you and you would get more money, which I think is quite a, quite a nice one, isn't it? To, you know, to promise that you'll treat anybody in the order that you called. Yeah, that's interesting because it suggests that, so, that that perhaps before they put that in, that was a problem, you know, that, or they were preempting it being a problem. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and you had to promise to send for help when needed. So, you know, not to just sort of wing it and think you could get, you know, if it got out of hand or beyond your skills, you had to promise to send for help. Um, you had to, if there was any doubt who the father was, this is quite a horrible one. If there was any doubt about who the father was or we did, just didn't know, one of the midwife's job was to get that information out of the labouring woman. So to harangue her while she's in labour to 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 fight to to have her name the father, but it was a double-edged one because she had to promise uh, that she would get the right name, and <laughs> not the labouring woman just name anybody. Just shut her up. You know? <laughs> yeah, so I knew about the name, but I didn't know that little nugget that they were they were under pressure to make sure it was the right name. I mean, gosh. Yeah, well, parents were terrified about being at the charge, you know, for a, for a child that they got to raise when some some uh, father should be paying the maintenance. Um, and they, they had to promise not to use any witchcraft or charms. Okay. And they um, had to promise if the baby died that they would give it a proper burial. And obviously okay. a, an unchristened baby couldn't go in consecrated ground in the churchyard. So the midwife's oath says that he's still got to have a decent burial somewhere that it can't be dug up by a dog or a hog. So, you know... <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Okay. It's 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 really hard, I think, for us to comprehend that that sort of strict rule, like oh, because because the baby's not christened, it's got to go in unconsecrated ground. I think that's quite alien to us today. But yeah. at least they were considering that they had to be well buried. Yeah, and it was it was your job to make sure there was you know. quite a decent decent burial. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's. <laughs> That's some interesting points there. I quite like. I quite like the witchcraft one as well. I'd, I'd be quite up for having some witchcraft whilst I gave birth. To be quite honest. <laughs> um, talking of which, how how dangerous was giving birth? Actually, um, less dangerous than people tend to think. The vast, vast, vast majority of labours proceed without any intervention. Um, and the, the in the sort of late 17th century, the mortality rate is a lot lower than it is in, say, Victorian England. Okay. There's all sorts of reasons for that. Uh, one of which is that the involvement of surgeons, and you know, they've just come from a post mortem or from doing an operation, and they wipe their hands on their apron, and then they go and help you give birth, and they pass on all sorts of germs. Whereas in in periods when it, you were at home with just a group of women, if it was a straightforward birth, then they were less likely to be introducing infections. So uh, mortality rate is about 1.7%. So, you know, one and a half women 
per hundred. But obviously, the average birth, as I said earlier, was five to seven per family. So that's cumulative. But I think the thing about it is that we all know a hundred women in have we heard of. Um, so we'd all have know of somebody. Um, yeah. And it, and it's a lot on women's minds that that they could die. You know that this is a dangerous passage there's one one midwifery guide that um uses shipwreck analogy you know getting into safe harbor and that type of thing so you know it was it was known to be a dangerous time but really it's much less dangerous than popular myth will have it you know okay do you is is am i right in thinking that some people had if they could afford it they would have their portraits painted when they became pregnant or before they became pregnant just in case they passed away is that is that a myth or is that something that we think people really did no there are there are quite a few pregnancy portraits um around and but only amongst the upper echelons yeah it's yeah. very very expensive to do what there also are are a few um Mother's Legacy books printed. So there was uh, three or four um, that came into print. Some were reprinted quite often. And these were instructions to children from the mother if she died. You know, this is what me writing to you if I should die and I'm not here to tell you myself. One of them even includes names for her grandchildren that she thought she'd quite like. <laughs> <laughs> but mainly they were to do with being, being godly, you know, and being brought up in, in, uh, in a proper way. Um, so, yeah, Mother's Legacies were a thing as well that some of the uh, more well-to-do women would do. Oh, that is sad. <laughs> um, am I right? also right Like in thinking that um, that in some ways, um, I can't know how to word this. So I, I thought that um, that midwifery started off as, like you say, women, very women-centric. And then um, as, as centuries progressed later in the time towards the Victorian times, men started getting more and more involved. Mm. And um, and in some ways they made giving birth more difficult or um, more painful because they did things like saying, um, like give birth lying down, for example, whereas previously women had, had you know, tried to let gravity help and... Um, had things like the birthing stools and the um and yeah just just like you said sitting up to to give birth is that a myth or is that um is that accurate or accurate-ish ish <laughs> like all things like a lot of these things really so yeah in 17th century england women gave birth upright unless they were poorly it was it was, wasn't really a thing to to lay flat well people didn't lay flat anyway they'd slept propped up um because on, on bolsters because um digestion was thought to be inhibited by you laying flat which you know we, we know you get a bit of indigestion sometimes if you lay flat that type of thing so there's, there's you know there's sensible reasons for it but people early when people did sleep on bolsters and cushions propped up a little bit not fully upright obviously but just reclining and so if you think about it it's logical that they wouldn't then suddenly decide to get to go onto the flat of the back to, to give birth but um birthing chairs quite elaborate affairs in wealthier families something very much like a dairy stool in ordinary families uh, and then you can see why the role of the gossip was so important because if you're sitting on a little um three-legged v-shaped stool you're going to need somebody behind you holding you yeah um, absolutely and, and then you've got your midwife crouching down in front of you but um some physicians would write that the most common position in england was that women seemed to favor because it was a cold country although it doesn't feel like that today um was sitting on the edge of her bed Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, because then you've got the bed curtains keeping the, the wind off. 
Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, so did they, I, I meant to say as well, if anyone's watching and they want to comment with questions, please, please do feel free. I forgot to say that at the beginning. Um, so did they have any sort of pain relief um, for whilst you were labouring um, or, or was it completely natural? No, no, there was pain relief. Some pain in labour was expected. We had Eve's curse to thank for that. And so um, good Christian women expected to be in pain, um, to travail in sorrow, as the Bible told us. Um, but that didn't mean that they had to be in unimaginable agony. Our midwives had a whole array of um, things they could turn to to help help speed the birth up because that was what the main treatments seemed to do and they start off quite gently so you might have a bit of cinnamon in some um some wine things like that all designed to open the body and just to help things along loosen the passages um and then they get more and more um strong so you could eventually end up with sort of opiate type um treatments you know if the labor was excruciatingly bad um and they had things that we would find quite odd now, like um, suffumigations. So when a mother was sitting on the birth chair, which essentially is like a loose seat without the front, um, they, they could put some aromatic herbs in a chafing dish and burn them. And then the fumes and smoke would go up her bits and, and help open up everything. And, um, and, and so, you know, there's a whole range of, of things that they would be willing to try. Um, but a lot of it is the things that are popular now, you know, active birth, walking about the chamber, supported by your gossips, but keep active until until you absolutely are ready to push. Um, walking up and down the stairs, anything that can help, very recognisable today to, to uh, modern birthing practices. Yeah, actually, I think in some ways, um, modern birthing practices in, in very recent years have started harking almost back to the past um, with, um, sorry, sorry, I just had a really loud motorbike go past and I couldn't hear myself. Um, yeah, um, with things like um, uh, doulas and um, and a rise in, in giving birth at home and things like that as well. So um, if you did get in, in difficulty, um, just thinking like myself of needing a C-section, was there any, um, was surgery at all available and forceps, um, things yeah, like that? Or? Yeah. Absolutely, but they weren't the they weren't the purview of a midwife. Um, okay. So if you got into difficulty, the midwife would send for a surgeon. Okay. But realistically, when things went wrong, they went wrong. Um, it might only be that one percent, but you know, it it was a tragedy because there's very little anybody could do. There were forceps from the early 17th century, um, but one family kept them very close by um, for a whole century, the Chamberlain family, um, and didn't let anybody see them. So when they used them, they went through to all sorts of um, secret, you know, putting cloths up and things so people couldn't see them. Um, but by, by the 18th century, surgeons have got, um, have got a sort of forceps that are recognisable as the same thing that are used now, the same sorts of looped blades, very similar, uh, and could help that way but one of the things well the midwife says is that you're not to mess about with women you know you're not not to try and hurry things along inappropriately because there was a very much a feeling that the the hand women you know the, the untrained the ones who hadn't been through the apprenticeship were forever interfering with women trying to open up things and, and get things moving along too fast okay yeah yeah, which comes with a whole new, another set of dangers, doesn't it? Like preeclampsia and yeah. So, um, so after you'd given birth, um, how did people feed their infants? 
um, was it, did everybody breastfeed or um, wet nurse or was there alternatives? No, there was no alternatives to, to um, breast milk in one form or another. So if you couldn't breastfeed yourself for any reason, then wet nurses were, were the answer. Um, they tended to be really things that the upper ranks did. Um, but even then, from the early 17th century, that changes. So in 1622, you have um, a text come out. It's only a short pamphlet, The Countess of Lincoln's Nursery. And here, she's the Dowager Countess. Um, so she's very high ranking. And she writes a whole treatise saying, you know, it's not right to not feed your own children. Um, it's a job of work that God's given you. She had 18 children and didn't rescue any of them. Because um, that's one of the things you find, although the average is five to seven, as I keep saying, it's yeah. by the upper classes who had lots more, you know, lots of children, so they, that affects the average. Um, yeah, her husband wouldn't let her feed any of them himself because it was seen as a job of work. Okay. Yeah. And were upper ranking, it cast aspersions on the husband's status and his wealth if he was having his wife doing manual work. So she writes this treatise in 1622 dedicated to her daughter-in-law, Bridget, who is feeding her own children. And, and the Countess of Dowager Countess is actually blown away by this and thinks it's amazing. And it's opened her eyes. And, and she can only write it because she is a dowager and she's got her husband uh, telling her she couldn't do it. But you know, so she lays into him in this treatise and says it was all his fault and she really regrets it. Um, but she says, you know, what an inspiration Bridget is. So you see that as part of um, becoming... Um, in the Protestant tradition from the early 17th century. Um, if you got into trouble, what you find is breastfeeding is much more um, communal. Um, so for the first three days, um, they didn't think contrary and completely counterintuitively that cholesterol was any good. <laughs> okay. Until your proper milk had come in, your friend or your neighbour or sometimes your mum, if she just had a baby, would feed your child again another one of these reciprocal gossiping duties and then when your milk came in properly you take back over um people in middling ranks often sent their children out to nurses um and the baby would go and live with somebody else for its first year and it was weaned and toddling and and you see lots of diaries noting that you know they went to see their child on a Sunday afternoon and it was doing well, or sometimes just the dad goes in and pays a visit. Um, but that's something the Countess of Lincoln thinks is terrible as well. Now, in retrospect, she didn't think it was necessarily terrible when she had all these <laughs> eighteen children herself, perhaps. But yeah, um, she she said there's all horror stories you see of, of children dying at the home of the wet nurse being overlain which you see on the bills of mortality quite regularly. And that means that somebody, you know, that they suffocated when the nurse overlay them and slept. And then there's all sorts of implications mm -hmm. about nurses doing it just for money and being drunk and, and, and things like that uh, as part of the propaganda against uh, sending your child out. But yeah, there's no alternative but a woman's milk one way or another. Yeah, sure, sure. That makes a lot of sense. That that fear of um, of wet nurses and, and and nurses in general and sending your children out that that prevails for centuries and centuries, doesn't it? Because I, I you know I've read newspaper accounts of similar sort of fears of a nurse being drunk and yeah, which which quite naturally. I, I mean, even today, I think you worry about who's you know you vet your child minders and you worry about it and all those kind of things, don't you? So, um, so what bef before women became pregnant <laughs> what did they 
understand about their own reproductive cycles, do we think? Lots more than you think, really. I mean, I think our attitudes to women's reproductive cycles has been skewed by the sort of 20th century and they, well, you know, let's not talk about things like that. And, uh, and um, although women do keep it private, privacy is relative. So if you're a family and you're sharing a chamber pot, then people are going to know things that are going on in ways that we can't imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so we girls did know that they'd start having periods as, as a fact of life. Um, and also because in the 17th century, the body was thought of as being a balance of humours. It was also thought to be a very bad thing if your periods didn't come on at puberty. So because your humours were all skewed with then and you were going to be gathering up too much blood and you could become ill. And what you find there that's interesting is that the surviving letters are often written by dads to physicians saying, you know, I'm worried about my teenage daughter. She's 16. She hasn't had a period yet. And I don't think she, you know, she's in very good health because of it. What do you advise? Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. I wouldn't have expected that. I would have thought there would be a male-female taboo divide, I guess. Um, so that's very interesting. I think dads had a vested interest in their girls growing up to be good wives and, and not being <laughs> not having a cycle meant that they weren't going to be yeah. part of that. Yeah. So, um, so, we, so you think teenage girls expected it and, and were waiting for it. Okay. Okay. So... Um, Oh, sorry, I have just, I just lost my mouse there. That was really random. <laughs> just scrolling down to make sure I got all the questions in. So how did they cope with their, with, with their periods? Because um, I'm already thinking, did women wear knickers by this period? No. So how did they cope with their blood loss? Um, well, again, it's to do with what rank you're in. Um, Essentially, I've got some here, little linen cloths, rags, linen rags, cut out bits of linen rags, and that's all anybody who did use anything did. So you might fold them a couple of times and then sort of, you know, scrub them between your legs and get on with it. Yeah. And then they would be boiled and reused and, and so on and so forth. And these were made out of old 90s, old shirts, that would go through various stages. In it, linen is this commodity that goes on through, it has several lives. And it's really interesting because it's one of those things that's made quite often at home. So people who, who had land would grow the cotton flax um, and then, you know, weave it and go through all the stages and bleaching it um, could take a whole summer because you'd lay it out on the grass and it had to, um, it had to go through several months of that before it was considered ready to use. And then it then it would be in garments, it would be in pillowcases, it would be tea cloths. Any household cloth with the word clout in front of it. And the clouts, so dish clout um, and clouts were bits of linen made out of other things. Okay. Um, not good linen. And and then eventually they become the clouts that women would use. The time of, um, but also, you know, your nappies um, in the toilet. Um, and then there was a stage after that for, for these because they would be collected and then they could, would be sold to the rag woman and then they would go into the paper making industry. Okay, yeah, so they just they just were washed and then reused and then when they had completely had it, you'd recycle them. Yeah, yeah makes sense. Yeah. I quite like that. Why not? But a lot of ordinary everyday women just didn't didn't have the capacity to even have spare 
spare rags for that. So there's an awful lot of what we would call free bleeding going on. Yeah. Um, and that goes on into the 19th century. Um, there's lots and lots of stories of women working in the cotton mills and, and factories where there was sawdust on the straw for that purpose because they didn't wear knickers and it was just the done thing, the normal thing. Yeah, people didn't... Um... Because we, I think it's become associated with a hygiene thing, hasn't it, over the centuries? But that that's obviously a much more recent invention, I suppose. Okay, that's interesting. Um, oh, somebody's just commented actually to say, um, my mum was a teenager during the Great Depression. Um, she spoke of wearing the the reusing the diapers they had worn as babies that's interesting yeah well it would make sense wouldn't it why not because it's been it's not something you're going to do going to want to do anything else with it <laughs> i'm not going to make it into a hat oh you know sure so yeah i mean that's coming back into to fashion isn't it a lot of women now are opting for reusable washable sanitary protection and so that's that's another thing that's come full circle yeah absolutely absolutely and and i think we are trying to um break away from this constant association with it as, as unhygienic, which is not helpful at all. Um, so in terms of things like, um, you know, having period pains and cramps, was there um, sympathy for that or an understanding that, you know, because that could be pretty debilitating, especially when you're your earlier periods, I think, um, you know. Yeah, I think there was sympathy for that. Um, treatments tended to all be... Um, a variety of getting things out of the body. So purges, things that would make you sick, things that would make you go to the toilet, um, things that would open up the vessels to help get this out, to help encourage the blood to get out um, was, was thought to be the, the best thing for that. Um, Bloodletting was used widely. Um, to, um, people being um, cut in the arm or various other parts of the body to take out some blood because it might be thought that the reason that you're having period pains was that your blood was so full of humours that were bad that it was thick mm -hmm. and so you want to thin it out by taking away some of the excess. With period problems you tend to have your blood let in the ankle on the okay. that it would all flow down and out of the body. So okay. there's a chart where in medical books where the best place to let people's blood from for different conditions is we are, but it isn't very often or normally. Our poor ancestors must have been so anemic. If you think about how their diet compares to ours, and then you're, you know, you're having a period which can make you a bit anemic anyway at times, mm -hmm. and then on top of that, somebody's trying to bloodlet you, and then you're working all these long hours as well. Potentially, I just, I don't, I, I find it almost like unfathomable how they got up and carried on working and how they carried on doing things because I, I would just be a mess on the floor. I think I just, yeah. I think it's interesting as well. There's a class divide there where it was expected, even in uh, medical books from quite well renowned and um, famous physicians, that your know, upper ranking women who sat around all day doing a bit of embroidery and not, not working would have pain, more painful deliveries, would have more period pains than. Um, a woman who was labouring in the fields all day, who were very much thought, you know, have stronger bodies and would yeah. get on. Well, there's probably, there's probably is a bit of logic to that, really, isn't there? Probably, but um, yeah, I do. I do constantly wonder how they did it. And then and then you read um, you know, you read novels and sensationalist novels with all these ladies fainting, and you think maybe maybe there's this tiny nugget in there where women did faint more than we do now because they were all anemic. <laughs> and 
and overwork and I mean and being being seriously anemic because not pleasant at all it's a really no. odd feeling um uh yeah so no the, the, my ancestors have my sympathy on that front that's for sure yeah. well, interestingly enough one of the treatments for anemia was what they called steel waters which is iron iron refused waters though they did know that iron okay. was very good for anemia and there was a particular form of anemia that teenage girls were susceptible to um and it was called green sickness and um it was if they hadn't started their period yet and there and various other um symptoms but green sickness and is now thought of one of these sort of pernicious anemias that young girls, teenage girls can get. Um, some people have likened it to tyranorexia and things like that, even the go off your food. And there's lots of similar symptoms, but obviously we wouldn't retrospectively diagnose people because mm. it's all a different era and the, the symptoms you tell your doctor about are determined by the culture you live in. But it is, it does not seem, you know, that it responds to these steel waters as they call them. And so that might be why you take your daughter to a spa Okay, yeah. To drink the to drink the um, sulfur rich or, or iron rich waters, um, and that would bring their periods on. And because obviously, you know, if you if you're not a healthy BMI enough for your cycle to start, it's not going to do. And you know, and that also is to do with your anemia levels and your iron levels. Yeah, um, so, so they were alert to things like that. You know, much earlier than you might than you might think. And is there? Is there anything that they said that women couldn't do or shouldn't do whilst they were on a period? Because it, it sounds very much like they just got on with it. But um, is there is there anything that they kind of, you know, weren't allowed to do? There are, well, it depends, again, <laughs> on who you are, like you say. <laughs> the likes of me would have had to get on with things because there wouldn't have been any, any other choices. Um, but... Different societies had different rules, and one of not periods so much, but bleeding after a, after you'd given birth, um, women weren't allowed to go into church until that had stopped. Okay, um, and then women would have a what they call a churching ceremony, where they would be welcomed back into the family of the church because obviously again the connections of Eve's sin and childbirth and purification then needed after you've been through that uh, that process. So. Um, after you've given birth in the 17th century, you would have a period of rest, and it was an extended period as well. The woman's month was named because it was meant to last a month. Um, okay. So you stay in your bed um, incrementally rise. So for the first three days or so after you've given birth, you weren't even supposed to change your sheets, like, you know, get up and change your sheets. Um, you were meant to rest properly, um, yeah. keep a dim light because your eyes could be sore. And then Bit by bit, by and by, you, you know, you get up a little bit more to the stage where after a couple of weeks, you know, you'd be pottering about in your bedroom quite fine. Um, and by the end of the month, you would be in your house, but you wouldn't go out. Um, and then at the end of the month, you would go to church and have this big celebration. Um, and it started off in, in the early part of the period being at the church door. And then when you'd had the ceremony, you would you were allowed back in, but they eventually just ended up being a few words in the church. Um, but it's one of those ones that throughout the 17th century goes in and out of fashion um, as the civil wars affect who's in charge and what they believe mm -hmm. in. So, you know, it stops for the period of the uh, Cromwell's. Um, well, it worked, wouldn't it? Typical Cromwell. <laughs> uh, starts again afterwards. I, I like that. The um, it, There's a lot of logic to that as well. Like, I know after I... Um, 
after I gave birth, I was itching to get up and do things and, and, and then sometimes overdid it, um, especially cause I'd had surgeries, but, um, yeah, uh, I think I would have found it very difficult to not do anything for a month. But on the other hand, I think my body probably would have thanked me for it, you know, especially cause it can be so exhausting giving birth. It's not a, you Again, know, for some people. Things with a lot of, a lot of logic behind it, isn't there? I mean, mm. if you've got little tears and things like that, then just sitting and resting and letting yourself get better. It's got a lot to be said for it. Um, but again, it's so class centered because yeah. count the upper ranking women would take six weeks without thinking about it. So they're, they're lying in, um, which is where lying in hospitals get their name from. Their lying in could go on quite happily for six weeks. Um, and they, you know, they, they'd milk it for all it was worth. They'd be receiving visitors and, and getting presents and, and being made a fuss of. Whereas your um, washerwomen will be back at work in two or three weeks because they can't afford not to. There's yeah. no incentive. And yeah, of course. If you've got a, a family of several small people and your husband and you're working from home, most people's businesses were at home, no matter what it was you did, it was you know cottage industry, then the dad was having to not work as hard because he was going to have to take over some of the domestic responsibilities. Obviously, your friends, your gossips would, would do that as well. But it impacted on everybody. So, you know, very, you know, you'd have to be lucky to have that luxury of a four month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can imagine, actually. Yeah, it's, um, yeah. <laughs> I definitely would want to go back in the past and be a rich person. And all. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, so moving on to later stages of life, what did they understand about um, the menopause and um, and what were their experiences of that like without HRT? <laughs> yeah, there's very little written about um, the menopause. It's not a name that actually exists until um, hundreds of years after the 17th century. So it's a okay. before we get the word menopause and we import it, we borrow it from the French. <laughs> and then, um, so it comes in quite a lot later. So you you see it as just sort of written down um, the cessation of the term the end of periods. Um, but it was known to be the end of the woman's fertile period. And for some women, this was a sorrowful time. You know, if they were still hoping to have more children. If they'd lost a lot and they were still hopeful that there'd be some to come along, they could be sorry. But for other women, it was quite liberating, you know. Um, they could think, well, no, you know, at least I won't have to worry about that anymore. Yeah. So there are... Um, leaflets pamphlets that was that were sold in town squares offering miracle cures for things like flashes hot hot flushes so i mean symptoms were known about um and unexpected and, and and you do see all the sort of um tropes that we associate now with women who are post-menopausal you know sort of hairs on the chin and this type of thing so it was understood to be a process but aging in general was thought to be a drying out process in the humoral system so you you when you're youthful your dusty and moist moist body becomes slowly slowly withered and dry dry and shriveled yeah, yeah exactly that um and so you know menopause fits entirely with that because if you're getting drier and drier then so you haven't got the spare blood that you need to get rid of so you don't have your periods anymore but it was completely utterly known that the link between um periods and babies so yeah. The common phrase was that there's no fruit without flowers. So the, the most common name in the 17th century for a period was flowers. So you and I would say, well, you know, dewy flowers, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, you know, it would be normal for people to, to refer to, to not being fruitful anymore. Um, no fruit without flowers. 
That makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I just, I just caught up on the whole drawing out, trivialing as you get old. It does make a lot of sense, though. If that's how you, if that's how you understand the body and medicine, it's all, it's all so logical. Um, and um, I suppose less women. I did less women go through menopause because women died younger. Um, you know, or do you think it was just as prevalent you know i don't know what the average age of death was um well the average age of death is is late 30s but that's very skewed by the number of children who die yeah okay yeah sure if you can if you can get past 25 as a woman there's no real reason why you wouldn't get to 60 or or longer so you know if you can if you can go through the key sort of changes and you know if you get through child rape the younger child re, um, rearing years, um, if you, you know, deaths in childhood were horrifically high, um, starting with, you know, the first year, then through to the fifth year, mm. to um, fully a third not surviving to 15. Um, you can see why the figures, no matter how many people lived to an older age, would, be, would bring that bring that average age down to the mid-30s. But no, there's lots of accounts of, of women who lived to remarkable ages, really, and um, in their diaries or the letters, they'll moan like anything about the, the problems of ageing and how horrible it is and, and things like that. Um, and do you think people learnt about the about periods and um, what childbirth was going to be like and, and menopause? Do you think a lot of that came from people's mothers? Uh, just... Um, one of the commenters, Jackie, here has just said she thinks that your mother probably had a role too. Um, do you think that's that's accurate? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. As we started off saying, you know, in the childbirthing chamber, there was quite often if your mother was still around, she'd be there, and and as would you know, your mother-in-law, whether you yeah. whether that was a good thing or not. Um, and and generally female relatives. So yeah, I mean that's why it's it's hard to find a lot of evidence because a lot of it is already passed between mothers and daughters. Um, one of the places you can find that is in women's receipt books, which is their name for recipe books, and they're often passed down between mother and daughter, and they often contain recipes for what we euphemistically call women's problems. Um, you know, in large numbers. So yeah, uh, and you can see them being passed down in wills. From okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It would be interesting to hear whether Paul Couchman, who I interviewed about um, Regency cooking, whether he's come across any of that actually. So I know he's a he's a recipe collector. <laughs> um, so what about if you? Um, yeah, it's it's in, interesting actually. Just thinking actually, what you what you're saying about um, about women, because I think sometimes when we look at the past, we can think that um, family family relationships weren't as close. Um, you know, you talk about perhaps your infants going off for a year. Um, you think about infants dying young and having to accept that to a certain degree and get on with life. And sometimes I think that can give you a bit of a skewed picture that people didn't have the same um, or didn't have to the same extent that that familial bond or, or 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 love even or relationship but actually i think when you look at um <clears throat> the things that you're talking about like women supporting other women i think that's um evidence that it that it was there and in in the same way as it is 
today. Oh, um, yeah, I mean, there, there's some harrowing stories. There's um, Lady Anne Fanshawe talks about one of her um, little girls dying, and it's the most moving thing ever in her memoir because it's her and her, her husband stand at the side of the grave and wish they could. They just feel like jumping in, and I, I'll never forget that because it's just so evocative, isn't it? You could just sympathise so much with that impulse. And then um, the gardener, the diarist, John John Evelyn, who was friends with Samuel Pepys in the Restoration, his daughter dies of smallpox, and he writes so movingly about it. I mean, there's no doubt at all that um, Samuel Bonds are as loving as, as, as ever we could wish them to be in very many cases. Yeah, no, I agree. I've certainly come across, and again, I know it's later, but I've come across... Um, plenty of newspaper reports of, of coroner inquests on infants or or, or other loved ones and it, you get occasionally get a few sentences from one of the family members and you know it they always speak of of, of their loss and and the love that they had for that person and their devastation so yeah I completely agree I, I think it's um it's actually quite important to point out because I think um some of the literature around that has uh, in the past as well has suggested that um that people didn't grieve in the same way and I think I think maybe they had to get they had to um carry on um mm. because of practical reasons but i don't think that necessarily meant the grief was any less or lesser um yeah. so oh, yeah also um the religion plays a big part in how people are expected to behave so mm. if you were grieving to an extent you know was permitted but anybody who was thought to be indulging in that was questioning god's will because if god had seen fit to remove your family member then who were you to to question that by you know um grieving too much if you like so there was all sorts of sort of constraints there about how you could show yeah. your grief it doesn't mean people inside weren't every bit as heartbroken no and i suppose the other thing is as well you had more people around you who had gone through the, gone through similar so it was probably a lot easier to talk about i should think losing a child now you know i should think it'd be an incredibly lonely experience as well because it's not as common so therefore there's less people who would understand um how you might be feeling so uh you know i suppose on the other hand when people died more often um, and younger you would have had more people to turn to um but um rewinding a little bit to um the whole um giving birth experience one thing that I, I realized I had on my list that I forgot to ask you was um how was about the and we touched on it briefly but um how did your experience of birth change if you were unmarried would you still have had those women uh, I know you had your midwife interrogating you in the middle of you <laughs> but would you still have had support around you or were you um completely cast out it varies depending on what your circumstances are and you know and um, some people's families just take it you know on the on the chin and just accept the child into their family and, and then the so the 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 mother has the same support as anybody else more or less um but often in um bigger urban areas the midwife is paid for by the parish who are very cross about having to spend funds on that sort of thing and that's where you know the, the interrogation bit of it comes from and um there is that definitely is that shame factor of women being turned out left right and centre so being being unmarried and alone could, could, was a reality for some women definitely I think that's one of the cases where one of the rare cases where it probably would have been better to have been working class um I should think it was there was more stigma and more shame attached if you were uh wealthy and upper class and found yourself uh unmarried and pregnant than than there was if you were you know, working in a factory, potentially, I'm guessing. <laughs> that, that, that's very much my, my impression as well, because, you know, not everybody in, in um, working class 
uh, working classes were married. You know, a lot of people were in that sort of common law. It wasn't that that big a deal, and there was a lot of fluidity amongst you know family setups in ways that people think is very modern, but actually isn't. Um, our view has been skewed by, as I say, the, the sort of formalities of the, of the 20th century and things like that. Um, so, yeah, I think your, your instinct is exactly right on that one. I'm, I'm sure I read somewhere as well that in some places it was viewed as a, it, it could even be viewed as a good thing if you'd had a child outside of marriage because it proved before you got married that you were fertile. But I don't know that that's... Um, like maybe going a step too far, but uh, maybe maybe possibly occasionally. It's the case that uh, at least a third of brides were pregnant. Yeah. 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 Funny enough, there was a discussion about this on Twitter about um, it, it was related to family history um, with uh, people saying, um, you know, there's an awful lot of babies born premature. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and genealogists kind of going, it's not premature. And, um, and some people finding that still quite hard to accept, actually, that um, it might have been six months pregnant when they were mar getting married, you know, so. Um, even William Shakespeare, um, you know, his his um, wife was heavily pregnant when they got married. Um, he was eighteen, she was twenty six, and they had to get married sharpish. And and so you know, it was it was very not. They were particularly unusual in that. And part of that is betrothal was a serious business. If you got engaged to somebody, then it was um, binding. So a lot of people would start a sexual relationship once they got betrothed because they'd made a commitment. Hmm. Yeah, sure. Sure. Okay, so um, I'm just conscious of the time, and I just, um, if anyone has any more questions, please do pop them in the comments. Um, and, um, but could you, could you recommend any resources to people? Um, I can see you've got a cover of your book behind you as well. <laughs> um, about where they can go and to find out a bit more um, about yeah. about women in the early modern period and, and their bodies. I wrote because there were so many brilliant stories out there. Um, the gossip's choice based on the sort of gossips that I've been talking about. And I turned my hand to fiction writing and I, and I love it. Um, so I used the stories, um, case studies from a 17th, an 18th century midwife called Sarah Stone, who in 1737 published her case notes um, as part of the education of midwives. And so I used some of her stories and dramatised them for the gossip's choice. Um, but I also used the midwifery textbook, um, the midwife's book by Jane Sharp in 1671 for the remedies and the cures and the painkillers and, and the, the, the ways of going on that midwives would have done. So, um, so you know, if you want, if you like your historical fiction, but you want it to be based in good history, then um, The Gossip's Choice does that. But also things like um, Maids, Wives, Widows, which I published with Pen and Sword back in 2015, is all about women's lives from 1540 to 1740. Lots and lots of goodies in there. Three chapters on women's reproductive life periods, giving birth, pregnancy, afterwards. <laughs> so that might be a good place to go. That sounds great. I will, um, there will be a blog post probably out by, or it might be out by Monday because I'm actually away for two days. I'm actually taking two days holiday for the first time in every year <laughs> uh, and having some time off. So rather than being out on Friday, probably will will spill over by a day or two um but there will be a blog post it'll be www.genealogystories.co.uk forward slash and there'll most likely be sarah reed and that's sarah s-a-r-a -A, um and i'll make sure there'll be um, a copy of this video but then there'll also be um an audio version if you if you've missed a few bits and you're you're uh, been flitting in and out eating your dinner there'll be an audio version so you can catch up 
another time while you're driving and then there'll be like a list of resources both from Sarah and um, a couple of other bits that I've I've come across as well so everybody can go and pop over there and find their goodies mm -hmm. <laughs> so thank you very much for talking to me I feel like I could um I could carry on asking you loads of loads of questions and I, it would be lovely to talk to you another time about um about that process that you went through actually of of um writing a fictional book but making sure it's historically accurate i think that would be really interesting um i'd love to hear your thoughts on that so thank you so much for joining us um and oh just a few people here saying um that they're looking forward to popping on that blog post and looking up your your books and jane here Jane, I'm so glad you made it, Jane. Jane, Jane Blasser makes every single session, even though she's the other side of the world. So <laughs> I'm always really impressed because it's really early in the morning where she is. So thanks, Jane. Um, and yeah, thank you very much, Sarah. Thanks for um, joining me. And um, and uh, I'll get that blog post up as quick as I possibly can. <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot. Thanks. Bye. Bye. And this is where I press the end broadcast button and it takes ages and it's really awkward. <laughs>